0: Amen. Thank you, choir, as you make your way down. And also, uh, I don't think I've said when I was talking about uh, the Wednesday night study that's going to be starting. If you want to be part of our choir ministry, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, They meet on Wednesday nights and and practice and fellowship together. And we have worked out a way to uh, begin to make the Wednesday night teaching series available to the choir members so you can be a part of the choir without missing out on what's happening on Wednesday night and so we've about got that resolved. Well, amen. Let's get our Bibles out and open to 2nd Chronicles chapter 20. 2nd Chronicles 20. So in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then you get into 1st and 2nd, 1st and 2nd, 1st and 2nd. If you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you went too far. So page, if you can grab that hardback Bible in front of you, that's page 512 in that Pew Bible. Second Chronicles 20. We will look at this uh, passage from the Old Testament as we bring to a close this series that uh, we've been doing, this Blueprint for Life where we've spent the last four weeks talking about some specific areas uh, that were relevant to things going on in our fellowship and also things that the Lord has been laying on my heart that we've been able to deal with before we start another book study, which is our um, natural, typical way of study. So we're going to be 2 Chronicles 20. Conservative estimates are that as students graduate from high school, having grown up in church, being a part of the youth group, conservative estimates are that 70% will depart from the faith. Within the first five years of leaving high school, uh, church will become a, a, a bygone, something from your childhood. You will no longer uh, be interested in organized worship of any kind. Uh, the, the majority of those will filter back in after uh, uh, life uh, struggles come. And usually it's about the time you get married and have children that you realize that the catastrophe that's happened, and you know the answer because you grew up in church, and then you come back. But 70%, that's conservative. Now, of course, this fellowship is always, we keep track of that. I keep these uh, these picture uh, cards that we have. I have uh, probably, well, I mean, probably the last 17 years worth of them, and I keep track, and uh, I can still look over all those students' faces, and most of them, I know where they are, what they're doing, how they're going, and certainly... Uh, We are uh, way, 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 way below 70%. But still, the danger is real. And here's what we're not. We're not 100%. So the question is, maybe for you five, which one of you is going to fizzle out? Or is it going to be two of you? Or maybe will you be uh, the first class of 100%ers? I don't know. But here's what I do know. I think I do know a part of the reason that this is occurring, part of the problem that the American church is having, part of the reason why uh, growing up in church doesn't necessarily translate on a a national scale to being a Christ follower. I think that uh, I always say that my favorite quote in the world is... uh, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. I just, I just see that a thousand ways a month play out in a myriad of circumstances and situations in every possible facet of life. Whether you're a senior adult, whether you're a young married, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a parent struggling with children... What you think about when you think about God is the driving, determining force in your life. Because you may, everybody says, well, well, I'm a Christian and yes, I believe, but that is insufficient information. You need to understand why you exist and what your purpose is. You exist so that God may live through you, not that you may Uh, Not that you may live necessarily for God, but that God will specifically, biblically, the Bible teaches, live through you. And as he lives through you, that his kingdom may be expanded upon this earth. And then in turn, you will then glorify God, which is your purpose for being here. That's why God gives us children. That's why our children exist. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. That's what we need to be absolutely positively Uh, assure of in the depths of our heart. When I hear the things going on in Western Christianity today, it just, uh, it really doesn't shock me. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm surprised when people say 70% of teenagers after graduation depart from the faith. I'm surprised it's not 98% because I hear the rhetoric and the nonsense that goes on. When you listen to most young people Talk about God, give a testimony about God, or relate their uh, relationship with God, you will hear a phrase like, I am a Christian, I love Jesus because he's always there for me. You hear something along those lines because being a Christian and even using the term following Jesus, it makes my life better. It, it takes away my stresses. He, he solves my problems. Is that what the Bible teaches? It's almost like when I hear people talk about God, it's like they have this little pocket-sized Jesus, this little pocket-sized God that they can sort of keep in their pocket. Now, they're grateful that they have him. They're grateful that uh, he's with them, but they keep him in their pocket, and then when they need him, they just pull him out and plop him up and and bring him into the situation because they've got a problem. You know, you can just, whenever you need him, you just bring him out and put him right there and say, Jesus, I got a problem. I need you to fix it. So do the things you always do. You know, he can take care of whatever your need is or you know, he can give you whatever you think you need or whatever wisdom or direction you supposedly have determined in your mind that you need, but once you're done, you just put him back in your pocket, and then he's really not relevant to all the areas of your life that aren't really laden with crisis. You see, you just use him when you need him, and when you don't need him, you put him away. You know, so for example, on prom night, you keep him way down in your pocket. You don't get him out. You don't need pocket-sized Jesus on prom night because on prom night you're 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 good. You can make your own decision. You're doing your own thing, and then on Sunday morning you pull him back out and carry him out again, or whatever the case may be. You see, it's really a convenient and handy thing. This pocket-sized Jesus, this little uh, mini God. I mean, it's a you you can see where this whole idea caught on because oh, it's remarkably. Uh, I mean. It's so useful. It's almost like, you know, the invention of the drive through You know, you're hungry, you just pull, you don't even have to get out of your car, and somebody just throws food in your window, and you're good to go. Well, it's the same thing. You get in trouble, you just pull little God out of your pocket, and you got everything you need. But if you ever run into trouble, I mean real trouble, I mean if the rug ever gets jerked out from underneath your, your life, then you pull out pocket-sized God. And pocket sized God is not enough to see you through a real catastrophe, a real life issue. And so then what happens is these young people look at little pocket sized God and think, well, pocket sized God's not what I thought pocket sized God was. Pocket sized God can't fix all my problems like I thought pocket sized God could. And so then they depart from the faith because. Pocket-sized God isn't what they thought pocket-sized God was. He hasn't solved the problems the way they thought they were. And so they say there must be a better way or maybe I was just young and naive and so I believed something that really wasn't true or what really wasn't useful. And so they go to live their life on their own. Now here's my question. I'm not saying that your life has been a bed of roses and that everything's been simple. But can we just all agree this morning that the real trials in these young people's lives are yet to come? Can we agree on that? That the hardest things that they're going to face have not happened yet. And so they live in a, the first 18 years of their life, pocket-sized God works And the reason they're all departing the faith after they leave is because guess what happens when you leave home and join the Marine Corps or go off to college or begin to pursue a career? Trouble comes. Big trouble. Hard situations and circumstances that pocket-sized God's not going to fix. You see, it makes perfect sense when you really stop to think about it. Or we could go a little further and we could ask ourselves this question if this current generation is growing up with this pocket-sized theology, with this Christianity where the central focus is me, because that's what pocket-sized God's all about, where did they get this idea? Did they come up with it on their own? Or has the Whole concept of pocket-sized God. Really, just is it just an expression of today's Christianity? All you need to do to find out where pocket-sized God came from is go to the typical prayer meeting. You go to the pr- the prayer meeting. You go to you go to. Uh, a Sunday school class, or you go to a Wednesday night prayer meeting at most churches, and what you're going to encounter is what I call an organ recital. You're going to have a group of people in a room, and they're going to be reciting all the organs that they need God to fix, their liver, their kidneys, their heart. It's this organ after that organ after another organ. And so prayer becomes, God, my kidney hurts, and I need you to fix it. God, my heart's not working properly, and I need you to fix it. And then when we run out of all our organ problems, we go to everyone we know's organ problems. So we go to our neighbors and the people that we know. And and it's just this big thing about we just want pocket-sized God to fix our problem. Now, that's not what happens here. But I'm very devoted to making sure that that's that's not where we go or who we become. Is it bad to... To pray for our needs? Of course it's not. But what exactly are we praying for? Is all we really want is for God to fix our problem, or is there something greater that we're asking? You see, because if someone, if little ears are listening, and if every night the prayer before bed is, God, fix this, fix this, fix that, fix this... Why would we expect them to grow up with anything other than a pocket-sized God theology? Maybe, maybe what the American church needs is a dose of reality, a fresh glimpse of who God actually is, of what the Bible says about God and what it means to be His child, and to walk with Him, and to even use the term Christian. You know, it's Memorial Day, and every Memorial Day, I somehow always find myself uh, thinking about the passage of Scripture that tends to be on everybody's mind at uh, at, at any sort of national junctures, whether it be Memorial Day or Veterans Day or Fourth of July, would be 2 Chronicles 7.14, where you know the scripture will come up on the screen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, that's our verse. Man, we love that verse. I love that verse. That's an amazing verse. The problem is, is that I never hear anybody quote 2 Chronicles 7, 13. I never hear anybody bring out the context of this passage of Scripture. The preceding verse, before this amazing promise, the Lord says, When I... Shut up, heaven, and there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Not when heaven shuts up, not when there is no rain, not when there is pestilence. This is God teaching you and me about himself. He says, when I do this, when I shut heaven up, when I bring pestilence, when I then, then when my people call me by my name and humble themselves and seek my face in prayer. You see, God's teaching us a little bit. That's not a pocket-sized God now, is it? Oh, no. That's a little different spin, isn't it? Well, sure it is. What we have in 2 Chronicles 20 is a narrative story that I think as well as anywhere in Scripture is so amazing and so phenomenal. I can't even scratch the surface of everything. I have had so much fun in this passage. It's been such a blessing to prepare to preach this sermon to you. My heart is exploding with all the things that are here. And I hope that God will just, through His Spirit, communicate the things that He wants to communicate to your heart this morning. So let's pray and ask Him to do that, and then we'll study this chapter together. Father, we thank You for Your Word Now, Lord, we humble ourselves before it. Teach us about you today, Lord. Tell us who you are. Show us how you work. Give us a glimpse, Lord, of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reign sovereignly over all things. Father, speak through me. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray that we might glorify you, Lord. We're your people. We love you. And we want to commit our lives to that which you have brought us to this moment for. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 20 of Second Chronicles begins this way. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And Jehoshaphat feared. Now let me just give you a little bit of context about what's going on. So after King David, then his son Solomon was king over Israel. After Solomon, the the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Jehoshaphat is the king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat's been king at this point for almost 25 years. He is a man of God. He is a great king. Uh, He's done a lot of good things. The Bible places him among the five best kings that Judah ever had. Uh, He has really been a remarkable man of God. He's not been perfect. He's walked with God. He's done some great things, but he's also fallen greatly. And if you just went back a couple of chapters, you would find out in chapter 18 where he made a catastrophic mistake and uh, faced the judgment of God. But he repented and he returned to God. And the next chapter, chapter 19, tells of his restoration in the Lord. And as he began to restore the people of God and the kingdom of Judah, as he began to walk in the ways. I mean, he is a man like David, where you see his humanity. And he gives hope to all of us and teaches us what to do when we fall. The Bible's not presenting uh, people like Jehoshaphat or anyone else as to be perfect outside of Jesus. And so... Here, when we get to the latter part of chapter 19, man, things are good. So you see, they're, they're back on track and God's blessing and things are moving forward and things are going in the right direction and Jehoshaphat is really walking with the Lord and really seeing the blessing of God. And then, at the most unexpected time, I mean, here his life is spiritually in order. Here he is Man, in a great place with God, things are going good. The rug gets jerked out from under. Pocket-sized God is never going to work in this situation. See, pocket-sized God tells you that well, when you're, when you're doing good and walking with the Lord, bad things won't happen to you. And if anything bad happens to you, well, then it must be God punishing you for some reason. And so then you pull out pocket-sized God to fix the problem. The pocket-sized God can't fix his problem. See, that's why the Bible says, and it happened after this, and it happened after all these good things were going on, that in the midst of all of this goodness, when everyone would think now would be the time that it's going to be, I mean, I'm, I'm walking with God, it's going to be smooth sailing. Isn't that what so many people think? They think, man, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm in church, and I'm serving, and God is just ruling in my life and speaking to me. I'm not going to have any problems. What page of Scripture did you get that from? Because I haven't read it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, chapter 20 drops like a bomb right on Jehoshaphat's life. Here's a king. He has an army. Earlier, chapter 17, I believe, shows us he has an army of almost a million men. He is a powerful king. But this coalition of countries has joined together and from the east and has come down around the bottom of the Dead Sea and is coming up from the, from the south to attack him, which is where he has no fortifications, he has no protection because all of his enemies have always been to the west and to the north because he's got the Dead Sea protecting him on one side. But this group of people traveled all the way around. They've all gotten together to come and to attack him where he is defenseless. I don't know how things are going to work out. Graduates in your future. But I can promise you this. It's not going to go the way you think. It's not going to be smooth sailing. It hasn't been for any of us in this room. And it's not going to be for you. All of your hopes and all of your plans are good and wonderful. And you just give them to the Lord. And walk in them. But at some point. There's going to come a moment where when you think it's the least likely time, something's going to come unexpectedly. And your faith is going to be tested. It's what I call a Jehoshaphat moment. It's the moment when the faithful Christian couple has a child and there's a problem. It's the moment when when suddenly there's a fertility issue. And all we've ever wanted is a child. It's the moment when we've been in church day in, day out, year in, year out. And now our adult child is wayward and prodigal. Some of you are sitting right now looking at me in a Jehoshaphat moment. And there's a little part inside of you that Feels injustice. That feels like God. Seems like I I deserve a little better than this. For all that I've done and who I am, and I mean I haven't been perfect, Lord. But come on. And if you got a pocket-sized God, it's probably going to be your end. Because you better know the God of the Bible when you're facing a circumstance and a situation that's outside the bounds of your control that you have no ability, no leverage, and no strength to get through. So what does Jehoshaphat do? Look at verse 3. So he was afraid, and then the Bible says, and he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Verse 4, so Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Now, now here's what's astonishing to me about that. Oh, yeah, we could just say, well, you see, he seeked the Lord. That's what we need to do. But it's more than that. I mean, I, I, I want you to think deeply about what's going on here. You see, usually when we face great trouble, it's very easy for us to seek the Lord with our mouth. This is what little God Christianity does. Little God Christianity hits a a calamity, a catastrophe, a problem, a struggle. Now, little God Christianity is quick to drop to their knees and to pray with their mouth. But let me explain something very important to you. When you are praying with your mouth, where is your heart? Because in that moment, if your mouth is praying to God, but your heart is consumed with the problem, you are merely bumping your gums. Because what you're saying is, God, I want you to help me. I want you to help me. I got you out of my pocket. Here you are. But in your heart, you're saying, it's my problem, and i got to fix it, and i got to figure this out. You see, when you set yourself to the Lord, this is very different than just mouthing something. This man is the king of a nation, He is the most powerful man. He is someone that everyone looks to. Kings are not supposed to show that they're afraid or they're weak. And yet, here's someone who publicly proclaims, hey, I'm afraid and we need to fast because we got a problem. You know, sometimes dads don't know what to do. Sometimes dads are afraid. But most of the time, dads aren't man enough to tell their families that they're afraid or that they don't know what to do. And fathers, I want you to know something. One of the best things you can do for your family is you can lead them in the reality of what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't have any answers or wisdom? You see, Jehoshaphat goes public. I mean, you think about how hard this is. Imagine if the President of the United States came out and said this. He would be the laughingstock of the world. And probably be the laughingstock of half of Christianity, which absolutely pains me to say. Because if if we had a President that came out and said, I don't know what to do and I'm powerless and we need to seek the Lord, that would be the greatest day of my life as an American. So what does it mean to set yourself to seek God? I mean, the Amorites and the Moabites are coming. I mean, this isn't a game. This isn't a joke. This isn't isn't a maybe. They're coming. You're going to die. Your people are going to die. This is a critical moment in your life. And Jehoshaphat turns his attention away from himself. He doesn't... He, he doesn't run to God with all of his problems and all of his needs and pull out his little God and get him to start fixing everything. He focuses his heart on what his mouth is saying on who he's praying to. Look at what he says in this prayer. Look at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? That's not pocket-sized God. That's sovereign biblical God. That's somebody who understands the God that he's praying to is a king. And he is in authority. And whatever's going on and whatever's going to happen, it may happen, it may not happen. But he's God and that's not changing. But look at, his, look at his knowledge of who God is. Look at verse 7. He says, and Are you not our God? I mean, I'm so glad we sang that song this morning. I was about to jump out of my chair. <laughs> he says, Who drove out the inhabitants of this land before the, your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? What is he saying? He's saying, not only are you a sovereign God, but amazingly, sovereign, powerful King Jesus is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's saying God makes promises and God keeps promises. And so he prays to the sovereign God who's a covenant-making God who has promised certain things and he's simply responding to say, God, you're the King, you're the Lord, you can do whatever you want and here's what you've promised to do. Amazing. I love this. My goodness, if the rug gets jerked out from under you. And you turn your heart and begin to pray to a sovereign king who is in authority over all things. And your heart is filled with all the promises that you have hidden down deep in it over all these years that you've been here. My God, what might happen? Verse 8. And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Oh, my goodness. Now, where did he learn that? How does he know that to be true? How does Jehoshaphat know that God is promised? I mean, everybody in Judah knows what God promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. But what is he talking about right there? He's quoting Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 20. You can write in the margin of your Bible, 6:20, right out to the side. Because God promised 14 chapters earlier, when Solomon completed the temple, God said, "Now here's the deal. Let me tell you about the temple. I'm going to dwell in the temple, and if you need me, if something happens, remember: if I shut up heaven, if I bring pestilence, if the sword comes, you just come to the temple. You set your hearts and your mouth towards me, and I'll hear you, and I'll respond to you, and you'll be able to experience salvation. See, God said that they're not just making up stuff. This is what they're just saying to the, back to God what He's already said to them. Now, after all of this, then we get into the present need, which is usually where most people begin. I mean, we don't even say, hello, God. We just bow down and go, hey, I got a problem. Now, we're just now getting to verse 10, to the need. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Now, here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you might have given us to inherit. Now, it sounds like, if you're not careful, you're like, hey, he's kind of accusing God. He's saying, God, all this is your fault. He's not. He's just giving historical documentation of what's happened. When the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River and came into the Promised Land, if you know your Bible, you know this. God said, now I want you to go, march forward, and I want you to smash this people, this people, this people. Everywhere you go, I'm going to give you victory. But do not touch the Moabites' Or the Ammonites, leave them alone. They're your distant descendants, leave them alone. Now they could have wiped them all out, but God said, no, we're leaving them. And so now Jehoshaphat's saying, Lord, the people that you had us leave behind, the people that we blessed, the people that we were good to, the people that we were kind to are now the people that are coming after us. Hello, are you there? Is anything registering in your heart right now? Isn't this how this goes? Who are the people that are going to cause you the most pain in your life? The people that you've blessed the most. Who are the people that are going to turn their back on you? Who are the people that are going to stab you in the back and, and walk away from you in your greatest time of need? The people whom you have done the most for. The people that you've blessed the most. That's why it hurts the most. But when that happens, listen... A person with a little God in their pocket just doesn't get this. But a person who understands the sovereignty of God is like, wait a minute. Every time someone that I have poured so much of my life into hurts me, I have a Jehoshaphat moment. And I realize people aren't my enemy. And I say, God, you're the king and you're sovereign and you brought that person into my life. And the day I met them, before I invested all of these hours and hours and hours trying to help them, and now they're hurting me, you knew that was going to come and you brought them into my life anyway. Hello? Hello? If you're, you're, these are life-changing truths. You better get this. How did they get there? In other words, little God theology is like, look at my problems, look at my... But sovereign God theology is like, hold on a second, how did that problem get here? Now, sometimes it's disobedience, and so we've acted disobediently, and so now we're reaping what we've sown. But sometimes... God shuts up heaven. God sends pestilence and locusts. Sometimes the sovereignty of God is at work in our life. And here, Jehoshaphat's smart enough to know, the people that are attacking me are the people that you had us leave. So clearly, there's something going on. Well, we continue to read. Look at verse 12, which is... One of the most pivotal verses in this whole chapter. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? He's just asking the question. Will you not judge them, God? For we have no power against the great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Oh, oh, If you ever disobey your parents and get a tattoo, get that verse, okay? (laughs) My gosh. Write that on everything you can write it on. Commit that to such memory. Just say to yourself, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. I'm not looking at me. I'm not looking at all the things around me. I'm not watching Fox News. I'm not fretting about all the things I can't control. My eyes are on you. My goodness, if we could get this. Because whose battle is it? You see, we're all in the same boat to a degree. If you're here this morning and you're God's child... Whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you have before you, whatever struggle, whatever's breaking your heart, just get one thing clear. It's not your battle. You see, that's the whole point of him being your Lord. In other words, there's no peasant roaming around in Judah going, man, I don't know what I'm going to do about these armies that are coming to get me. That's not their problem. You know why? Because they're not the king. So whatever's going on with you, whatever's coming against you, whatever's attacking you, whatever it is, you're not the king. That's not your problem. Praise God. Why do we want to put the problem on us? I don't know. I don't want the problem. Boy, every day I wake up, I'm not God. I'm so glad. And I don't want to be. Verse 13. So then what happens? All of Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. Hmm. You ever heard that name, Jehaziel? No, you haven't. Not unless you were reading this text. You know why? Because we don't know who that is. It's just this person that shows up out of nowhere. All we know is his lineage. We know he's from the tribe of Levi. We know his name. We know his lineage. It's the only time he's mentioned. It's the only thing we know about him. Verse 15. And here's what he says. So this guy shows up out of nowhere and suddenly says, Listen, all you of Judah and your inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, says the Lord, do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Hello. Yes. Why? Because of this particular situation? No, because you're God's. And if you're God's, if you belong to Him, then whatever battle you're facing is not your battle. And guess what? Isn't it true? Help comes from the most unexpected places. See, pain comes from the places where you feel like you've invested the most and blessed the most and worked the most and served the most. And help comes From the most unexpected place. Oh, I I wish we had time. I could tell you a thousand stories. Of how at my lowest point. Someone that I didn't even think knew my name. Or know anything about me that I've never had a conversation with. Walks up to me, crosses my path. And just says exactly what the Lord knew I needed to hear. Because that's how God works. We move on. Verse 16. So tomorrow we're going to go into town against them. They will surely come up against the ascent of Ziz. And you will find that at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Uh, you will not need to fight the battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see that the Lord, the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Jude and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. That's the promise. The promise is you just go out there, you do what I say to do, and then you stand. I mean, the principle here is you wait. Yeah, some people say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. No, you're not. You're just being lazy. You ain't doing nothing. That's not how God works. They walked, they marched 12 miles to get into position. They did everything they could do, but once they'd done everything they could do, they stood and they just waited on God. See, they knew who God was, that he was sovereign. They knew what he had promised in his word, that he was a promise-keeping God. And so then when God spoke, when God gave direction, they just followed that direction. But, but listen, their, their circumstances haven't changed. They're still under the same threat they were under before. Nothing's gotten any better. They moved into position, and then they just Wait. And such a key to the Jehoshaphat moment, such a key to not walking away from God, such a key to not living your life with a pocket-sized God is understanding that God is not on your watch. He doesn't operate by your timing. And that if you want to see the power of God in your life, you have to learn to wait until God says, it's time to go, it's time to move. Now, I'm going to do what only I can do verse 18 so Jehoshaphat bowed his head and with his face to the ground and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord worshiping the Lord then the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise God of Israel with the voices loud and high so they're worshiping the Lord and their circumstances haven't changed oh wow they're worshiping God they're waiting And now, God sends them. Verse 20, so they rose up early that morning and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. So that's a 12-mile hike. As they go out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said, Hear me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Now, here's the thing. I just got to mention this. Faith is not believing what you want God to do. Another thing, if you listen to modern Christianity, it just makes my blood curdle. People talk about their faith, and they're talking about themselves. They're going, oh, I have such faith, and they start talking about God, and I'm like, God didn't say that. God never said that. You're making that up about God. God. Faith is not believing in what you want God to do or the way you want God to do it. That's not faith. That's insanity. Faith is believing in what God has promised to do. So there you can see the correlation between little pocket-sized God and biblical illiteracy because if you don't know what God's promised to do, well, then you're going to have a problem having faith in that. But that will be another sermon for another day. Verse 21. And when the Lord consulted with the people, He appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of His holiness. As they went out before the army, they were singing. They were chanting. They were saying, Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. The choir went out first. Just a little caveat for you. Whenever you hear somebody say, "Oh, I don't I don't like the I don't like those new songs. All they do is repeat the same thing over and over again." I always smile. Have you read your Bible? You're going to be miserable in heaven, aren't you? Have you ever Have you ever read your Bible? It's a funny thing to me that God's sitting on his throne and the angels around him are saying the same thing over and over for all eternity. And somehow you say it five times in a row and that's just horrible. Meanwhile, here you'd have lost the battle. Because guess what? We only got two lines and it's just over and over. So you'd have went, I ain't doing that. You'd have went home and... Moving right along, verse 22. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and then they were defeated. And the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made the end of the inhabitants of Seir, they then helped to destroy each other. So God works it out to where they not only start fighting with each other, then they turn around, they destroy each other. And so the people of God don't have to do anything. Verse 24, Then when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked down towards a multitude, and there were nothing but dead bodies fallen to the earth. Not one had escaped. They haven't shot an arrow. They haven't swung a club, a sword, broke a sweat, nothing. All they did was sing a little two-line song, and everybody died. But it's the journey of how they got here. You see, if they'd have pulled out pocket-sized God as soon as they'd have found out that there was somebody coming to attack them, this story would not be the way this story is. How many times do we have to see the thing that we most wish God would take out of our life be the very thing that He has used to glorify Himself in our life? How many times? I want you to notice verse 26. And on the fourth day, you know why it was the fourth day? What happened to the first day, second day, third day? They spent three days picking up the spoils. When they were all done, then on the fourth day, the Bible says. They assembled in the valley of Baraka. And there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka until this day. Now here's what I want you to see. The very valley where their enemies intended to be the place of their death God made the place of blessing Baraka is the Hebrew word for blessed the very place where they were doomed to perish, the very place where all their fears were centered, the the place where they were going to meet an army that they could not possibly defend themselves against, they couldn't possibly win, there was no hope, no chance apart from some miraculous intervention, the very thing, the very thing that Satan meant for bad. God used for his glory. Could it be this morning that when the life when the rug jerks out from underneath your life, that as terrible and as scary and as frightening as that moment is, don't be ashamed that you're afraid. Don't try to act like that you're not. Don't turn your lips towards the Lord and keep your heart focused on the problem. But just thrust yourself on the mercy of a sovereign king who is a promise-keeping king. And you know what he's promised to do. And that's all you know. But somewhere in the back of your mind you remember That the reason you're here is to glorify God. And somewhere in the landscape of this terrible turn of events. The sovereign God of the universe who fights our battles for us. Will work in our lives in such a way. Not that he'll fix our problems the way we want them fixed. Not that he'll do it when we want it done. Not that he'll even explain himself to us. But in the most unexpected way, he'll send a word of encouragement to you. And then he'll turn that very place into a place of blessing. Would you be where you are today if everything just rolled along? 17 years of graduation cards. I got them all out and lined them all up. I said, let's just see the Jehoshaphat moments. And I started looking. And guess who's still standing? Guess who's still beaming? Guess who's still glorifying God all these years later? The one who had the rug jerked out from under their life. Not the smooth sailing, everything's fine. Nope, they're gone. But the ones, when it all come crashing down, knew that they didn't serve a little pocket-sized God. Mm -mm. Because the most important thing about them is what they think about when they think about God. You know, some of you, you've messed up. You've gone down the wrong road. You've done something or things in your past. And every time somebody opens to the book of Romans and starts quoting that passage of Scripture that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you just wince. Because you wish that were true for you. But you can't seem to get over the mistake you made. You can't seem to get past the... the, The place where you were afraid and you did something that you regret. You didn't know what to do. You trusted in yourself and it just haunts you. It haunts you. And you live condemned. I want you to know something this morning. If you're a child of God, Satan doesn't have the final say in your life. So you need to just rise up out of the pity party. Don't have some kind of weirdo denial about that everything's fine when it's not. But just rise up out of the pity party and remember, hold on a second. Who is this God that I serve? What are the bounds of his power and authority? What has he promised me? And he, he didn't say, if you always obey me. He didn't say if you always do everything perfect. He didn't say if you are 100% right and good in everything you do. He said because you are my child, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what he said. And so he knows. And it just may be. That that place of your greatest pain, that place of your greatest shame, the thing that you always hoped would go away is the thing that God uses in your life for glory. He left the Moabites and the Ammonites there. It wasn't like when Joshua led them through the promised land that he didn't know this day was going to come. It's not like it caught him by surprise. When they marched by the Moabites, God in heaven looked down and said, there's going to come a day in just a few short decades and they're going to come to slaughter you. And though you could slaughter them now, we're not going to do that. We're going to let them come. We're going to let a thorn pierce into your side. We're going to let a struggle come into your life. You're going to make a bad decision. You're going to have an abortion. You're going to get a divorce. You're going you're gonna to forsake something that you said you never would. Something is going to happen that's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. But in the midst of that, they're just Ammonites and Moabites. It's not like God didn't know that day was coming when he saved you. He knew that. And he will use it for his glory because that is your purpose, child of God. That is your purpose. And that is the God that we serve. So he's aware. He knows. And I tell you, a young person that knows what to do in a Jehoshaphat moment is a young person that will change the world. Who's not afraid to say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, you are the king, the sovereign ruler of all things. And Lord, there are so many things that we think we know. But Lord, we need to be reminded that we never will be, nor would we ever want to be, you. You know all, all of the situations, all of the circumstances, all of the days that have passed and the days that are yet to come. You know all of them. And only you, only you are God. And Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God that doesn't shrivel up in a Jehoshaphat moment. You are a God that uses the greatest trials of our life to shine your glory the brightest. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the men and women in this room who have walked through the deepest, darkest valleys, who have carried like a boulder on their back. The trial. They've asked you a thousand times to take it away. And it's in a moment like this they realize they wouldn't be where they are if it wasn't for that. Father, thank you. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you for the struggling. Thank you for whatever it is that makes us more like you, that brings us closer to you. Thank you. Father, I thank you for the freedom that you bring into the condemnation of our lives. I thank you, Father, that you can grant freedom this morning to men and women and young people who have just been buried under the guilt and the shame that the voice in their head says, God will never use you because of what you've done. You can't even be a child of God and be in the circumstance or situation you're in. Father God, that voice is a liar. You are a king who is far greater than anything in our past. Your knowledge supersedes all, all of our lives, past, present, and future. So Lord, set us free this morning. Set people free to be what they've always been but never been able to experience, Lord. God, those who who don't know you They claim you, but they don't know you. That Monday through Friday, you're just a distant, dim component of their life just like everything else. Lord, shine your grace into our hearts this morning and show us that you are Lord and that that's the only way that we can be yours father bring us to a place where we're not ashamed to say i don't know what to do but i know who does to just